Well, you should probably pray, huh? <laughs> pray with me. Let's give glory to God. Father, we want to offer up to you our best musicians and their best offering of worship because you are worthy. And the celebration of the, the coming of your son almost demands it of us. And so um, help us now um, with our, what seem to us little gifts, to offer our lives to you as we ought. And let your word be a prompt to us now, Father. Help us to be sensitive to it and be quick to say that which your word has said, I, I will gladly do. And this we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Need to uh, update you on a couple of things before we open the scriptures together. First of all, I've been, uh, we've been in our capital campaign. I told you I'd give you our update today. This is where we are at this point in our capital campaign. Uh, 157 families have pledged $168,000, which is outstanding. Um, it's significantly less than last year. And if you notice on the next slide, there's about 112 families that are yet to become involved. And all, all I want to say is that if you're amongst those 112, know that your church needs your help. And I trust that's enough for you to prayerfully consider how you can join us in the weeks that are ahead. We can bring that up. We're about, if that comes up to last year's numbers, we're two years away from being debt-free as, as a church. And we long for that day um, for God's glory. So uh, make a note of that, make a prayer of that, and join us in the next couple weeks. I'll send you a reminder, those of you who are unengaged this week, I hope you'll prayerfully respond. The other thing you need to know in terms of needs of the church, you should have gotten this in your, with, with your worship guide this morning. It's just a list of the service opportunities that remain unfilled for the, for the coming year. Um, and starting in January, the training will open for that. So make that a matter of prayer. Especially, Stephanie is especially concerned about the kindergarten team, which is open both hours. There are no teachers currently signed up for our, our five-year-olds. So, unless you relish the idea of a herd of five-year-olds running amok in the worship center during this time, I would encourage you to consider signing up. This summer, while I was on sabbatical, I had the chance to serve with the five-year-olds in there, and it is outstanding. I mean, it's one of the best places to work in the church. You learn things about family secrets in that class. <laughs> I'll tell you what, and you can just see their parents, they look just like their parents, they disobey just like their parents do. It's a fabulous group of people, but uh, seriously, a great need. There's a number of them on here, and I, I hope you'll take that and honestly pray and ask God, what, what am I supposed to be serving the church in the coming year, and, and make a uh, note, you can sign up in the lobby today if you have clarity on that. But this season is the season of giving gifts. For many of us, that's our, our family uh, tradition. And uh, Tim Keller points out something in thinking about gifts that is not the normal way we think about them. He talks about how hard it is to get certain gifts. And he says, uh, imagine opening a present on Christmas morning from a friend and it's a dieting book. So then you take off another ribbon and wrapper and you find it's another book from another friend and the title is Overcoming Selfishness. And if you say to your friends, thank you so much uh, for the gifts, you're in a sense admitting for uh, indeed I am an overweight and obnoxious person. Um, 
He says some gifts are hard to receive because it's, to do so is to admit that you have flaws and weaknesses and you need help. And then he says perhaps on some occasion you've, had a, you've been in dire financial needs and a friend has given you a substantial amount of money as a gift. Um, and he says if that has ever happened to you, you probably found that to receive the gift meant swallowing your pride. And he says then, there has never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do so. Christmas means that we are so lost, so unable to save ourselves, that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. That means you are not somebody who can pull yourself together and live a good and moral life before God. And that, I suppose we could say with Linus, is what Christmas is really all about. Our humility and great need before a loving and generous God who meets that need in Christ. See, to embrace Christmas, at least it ought to be, to truly embrace Christmas as the birth of the Savior is an extraordinarily humbling thing to do. And today what we want to do is look back at Luke chapter 1 and we'll look at two ladies' stories who model for us the kind of humility that welcoming the birth of Christ really asks of us. So you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to jump back in about verse 26, right in between what we taught last week. I liken this to an Advent sandwich. Last week we looked at the, the top slice, the first slice was the angel Gabriel appearing to Zechariah and telling him that even though he and his wife Elizabeth were too old for children, they would bear a child. And he um, can't believe it, refuses to believe it, and so the angel says to him, Okay, you're not going to speak for nine months until the child is born. Then we looked at the second slice of that sandwich at the end of chapter 1, which is the birth of that child who was named John. We know him to be John the Baptist. And Zechariah's voice is then miraculously restored. And this is what he says in verses 76 to 78 at the end of chapter 1. He says this of his son, John, John the Baptist. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. And so today what we want to do is we're going to go back between those two slices of story to kind of the, the filling of this Advent sandwich, um, which looks at the time when Elizabeth was still pregnant and Zechariah was still mute. And in verse 24, after these days, it says his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent again from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So the sixth month here is the sixth month of Elizabeth, Grandma Elizabeth's miraculous pregnancy. 
And our story picks up there. And now the main character in this section of the story is Mary. This young teenage girl named Mary. She is a virgin. We'll talk more about that in a minute. She lives in a town called Nazareth. It's a small town. Some estimate maybe less than 500 people live there. More of a village, really. really. And it's in the middle of nowhere. You could say that Nazareth was to Jerusalem what Pocomoke is to Raleigh. Okay. And most of you are going, Poco, Poco what? Pocomoke, it's a little unincorporated area town up in Franklin County. And that's the point here. Nazareth is so small and so insignificant that he has to tell them it's in Galilee. Okay. That's, that's what he's talking about there. So this young girl, maybe as young as 12, most say in her early teens, um, engaged to a carpenter in a small town in the middle of nowhere, the great and powerful angel Gabriel appears and announces the birth of the Messiah, the Christ, the great king of God's people. It is the most unlikely of places and one of the unlikeliest of people, the fiancé of a carpenter, um, the savior of the world. We see here the savior of the world is coming humble. And that same virtue is expected of us as we follow him and worship him because of his coming. Verse 28 again says that the angel came to Mary and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So after 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testament, the angel Gabriel breaks that silence again with a visit to a middle schooler from the equivalent of Pocomoke. Okay, that's the setting for what we're talking about. Mary, as you just heard, is troubled deeply by this visit. And in verse 30, the angel calms her and says to her, um, if you could give me verse 30 there, there we go. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So as he did with Zechariah, Gabriel the angel shows up and calms Mary's fears. And explains his message to her. She's going to conceive in her womb. Okay, this is not going to be some magical, spiritual, adoptive appearance. But she is going to become pregnant. She's going to go through pregnancy. And she's going to give birth, he's saying. A very real pregnancy and birth. And Gabriel is again, he's predicting things that have not yet happened. This is not a description of what is happening. This is a prediction, a prophecy of what's about to happen. She is going to conceive. She has not yet, but she will. And it will be a boy. And that boy will be named Jesus, okay? which means God saves. And when Matthew tells the story, he says it's about God saving us 
from our sins. Now, the angel goes beyond that and predicts the absolute greatness of this child. Um, like John, but much greater than John the Baptist. Okay. This child's greatness is greatly going to eclipse Zechariah and Elizabeth's son. This boy is going to be king over Israel, not just for a, a term or two or a lifetime, but forever. It says, of his kingdom, there will be no end. It's a forever kingdom. And he will be, it says, the son of the most high. That is, the very son of God. These are stunning predictions for a child. But that's not what trips Mary up at this point in time. She asks in verse 34, Mary says to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Right? Mary is tripping over not the great predictions about her son being an eternal king and the son of God, but that she's going to have a son at all. Okay? She's in middle school and she's a virgin. There's, this is not something that's on the radar for her. So the angel answers her in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And so the angel gives to Mary three things that help her believe. First, she gets an explanation of how this is going to happen. It's a mysterious explanation, but it's an explanation nonetheless. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. All we know is what the Spirit says here. That she's going, she's a, the virgin will conceive and she will bear a child, will be a son, and that's by God, by God's work. The Holy Spirit is creating life in Mary's womb. Um, and so by virtue of this miraculous conception, the son will be called Holy, the son of God himself. It's interesting, um, lots of people struggle with the idea of the virgin birth. That it's a miracle that's really hard to believe. But I want you to notice that for Mary, this explanation, mysterious as it is, it's enough for her. Okay? She goes with it, as we'll see in a moment. Um, the Holy Spirit, she is a virgin. She's going to have a birth. And the Holy Spirit will make it so. And she goes with that. Okay? Um, it's enough for her. But if you think about it, this ought not be a problem for the God who spoke all of life into existence, right? Um, for instance, in 1 Timothy 6, it says of God, um, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. God is always, ceaselessly, constantly giving life. It's just here he's using an extraordinary means to do so. So she's given an explanation. She's also given a sign. It says in verse 36, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Okay. 
So her relative Elizabeth, as we saw last week, who was far too old to bear children, think your grandma, okay, has conceived. And this is a sign to Mary of her own pregnancy, her own miraculous pregnancy. At six months along, so you can tell. Um, you could see Elizabeth and see that she was pregnant. You don't need a level three ultrasound at six months. You can tell. And so the idea here is that um, Mary gets, this is a sign for Mary. Okay. And there's a sense in which Elizabeth is pregnant for Mary, just as John the Baptist is born for Jesus. Okay. Everything points to Jesus. So she gets an explanation, she gets a sign, and then she gets this wonderful short declaration of the power of God. It's in verse 37. It just says, nothing will be impossible with God. God can do even this, Mary. And this is, the, this is the consistent teaching of Scripture about our God. Genesis, uh, for instance, says that is anything too hard for the Lord? Um, then you look at Job chapter 42. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Jesus himself is going to say in Matthew 19, Jesus looked at them and he says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So the idea in our story is that God's plan and his promises cannot be thwarted. They will be fulfilled. In fact, the NIV version of the Bible says, translates it this way, for no word from God will ever fail. God's omnipotence here, his power, is focused on his promises here. So he can be trusted to keep his promises. That's one of the applications for us coming out of this amazing statement about God's power. We can trust him to keep his promises. Promises like this one from Romans chapter 8, famously. Paul says, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Okay. That's his promise to us. We saw this promise in Hebrews chapter 13 when we studied Hebrews this year. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is his promise. God is a promise keeper. His words will come to pass for us. We're right to trust his promises. I like what Lewis Smedes writes. He says, yes, somewhere people still make and keep promises. They choose not to quit when the going gets rough because they promised once to see it through. They stick to lost causes. They hold on to a love grown cold. They stay with people who've become pains in the neck. They still dare to make promises and care enough to keep the promises they make. And then he says, I want to say to you, that if you have a ship, you will not desert. If you have people, you will not forsake. If you have causes, you will not abandon. Then you are like God. Because God keeps his promises. Nothing is impossible for him. And we should expect him to keep his promises. Okay? And when he does, 
we shouldn't explain them away and say, well, that was a coincidence, wasn't it? Um, let me introduce you to a couple. I've got this picture of them. Can you throw that picture up for me, Ryan? Uh, this, is, this is Mr. and Mrs. David Brown. Uh, they're Brits. And the story about them is how they met. He was out one night with some uh, mates, as he calls them, in a pub in, uh, in London. He goes home. He goes to bed. He wakes up the next morning, and a phone number is running through his mind, and he can't get it off his mind. So he texts the phone number, and this young lady answers, and they begin a conversation. They had no relationship to each other, had never met. He just had this phone number in his mind. He texted her, and sure enough, it was about five months later, um, they, they connected and eventually got married and became husband and wife. This is what they say about their story. He says, I, I went out for a quiet night with some mates and ended up having a few to drink. And when I woke up, this number just kept running through my head. And so he texted her and said, did I, did I meet you last night? And they had never met, ever, had no connection whatsoever. She says, I've no idea how I, or he says, I've no idea how I ended up with her number in my head. Um, and she says, I believe things happen for a reason. There's no way someone could have said my number in that pub, but he had that number in his head. She says, I know some people will find it hard to believe, but we know the truth. Enter Professor Heinz Wolf. He's the emeritus professor of Brunel University, and he says, whatever else it is, uh, it's a charming story, but I would be against a supernatural explanation. It's likely the number of this girl was mentioned in the pub and somehow this young man overheard it even without realizing and his subconscious remembered it. Yeah, all right, right. Now, I don't know if this was God drawing these two people together, but if an angel Gabriel had shown up in the pub and said, call this number, it's the woman of your dreams, we would know. And we ought, when God honors his promises, we ought to praise his faithfulness, not explain them away. And Mary does that here. She takes God at his word and resists the temptation to explain it away. Now Mary asks a question that at first blush sounds very much like Zechariah's question from last week when she asks, how can this be? And, and I would say, um, some people wonder why did he get such a strong rebuke and she did not. So he, was, he asked how it could happen and he was silent for nine months because of his unbelief. And she gets a sign where she's sent to her relative Elizabeth and her faith is affirmed there. Here's a couple things that, that are helpful for me. First of all, realize that their setting is very, very different. She is a middle school teenager in a little town in the middle of nowhere. He is probably an 80-year-old-plus priest. So I suppose you could say, to whom much is given, much will be required. He obviously knew much more about how God worked and was, in fact, in the temple offering sacrifices when the angel appeared. Second thing is, if you read their questions closely, they're slightly different. He seems to be asking, how is this possible? She seems to be asking, how is this going to happen? The one, is about, the one is about possibility, the other is about logistics. The one is about whether it will happen, the other is about how it will happen. But then we see plainly the angel simply doesn't say that Mary's question was out of unbelief. But Zechariah, clearly the angel says to him, 
because of your unbelief, you are not going to speak for nine months. But I think the thing that I want to make sure we see is that both of these signs that were given to Zechariah and to Mary are for their good. Each sign seems tailored to each of them to strengthen their faith. Think about it with me. Zechariah gets a promise. Your wife will bear you a son. He gets a sign. You will not speak for nine months. And he gets a rebuke for his unbelief. Just what he needed to believe. Mary gets an explanation. You will conceive by the Holy Spirit. She gets a sign. Your, your aunt or your relative Elizabeth is pregnant in her old age. And she gets um, this wonderful declaration of the power of God to keep his word. And so this is what God does. He does it for Zechariah. He does it for Mary. He does it for us. He gives us what we need to believe. He brings his truth to us at just, in just the shape and form that we need it. And some of you have experienced, believe it or not, in this room. It happens sometimes during a sermon. And I'll be preaching. And some of you will actually come up afterwards and say, were you talking to me? Were you talking to me this morning? <laughs> and you need to know, I'm good, but I'm not that good. Okay, I don't know your dark secrets. That's God taking his truth by his spirit and prompting you, applying it to you specifically. Um, God is at work helping you to believe. Some of you are here today so that you could hear something that's in this message. You could hear a scripture read. You could hear a verse sung. You could have a conversation in the lobby. And God is going to speak to you about your life. What, what are you going to do with that? And Mary exemplifies what we ought to do in verse 38. Mary says this simply, Behold, I mean, think about the message she got. And this is her response. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Okay. My, um, my daughter, Abby, teaches seventh grade language arts. She teaches middle schools, a whole room full of little Marys. This is not a normal middle school response, okay? This is a remarkable response of faith, and it, it has humility. She says, I am the servant of the Lord. Humility that's played out in full submission to his will. Let it be, according, let it be to me according to your word. I will do, she says, whatever you ask of me, period. No matter how crazy it seems, God, I will do what you ask of me. This is always our right response to hearing from God about our life by his words. Okay. Let it be to me according to your word. Um, do you respond that way? Could you today say with Mary, um, we sometimes say putting your yes on the table, or sometimes we'll say palms up, receiving whatever God asks and laying aside whatever you would want. Um, could you say with her, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Well, it continues in verse 39. In those days, Mary rose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah 
and she entered the house of Zechariah, and she greeted Elizabeth. So Mary is eager to search out this sign that the angel has given her and let her faith be strengthened by it. It says she went with haste, and she arrives at her aging relatives, Zechariah and Elizabeth's house. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, Mary, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So at six months, Elizabeth's baby is active in the womb. And that's nothing unusual, right, lady? ladies, for, the, for your baby to be active at, at six months? But what is unusual is that the Spirit, in the fullness of the Spirit, she interprets that to be that baby leaping for joy at the sound of someone's voice, Mary's, that that baby has never heard before. The Spirit gives her that understanding of it. By the way she states it, this is like another sign from God, and this time it's for Elizabeth. And this one comes through her unborn child. It's another one of those stories that helps us see God is at work in our unborn children in the womb. And again, it's another incentive for us to protect and care for them. But the spirit, who's really active in these stories, prompts Elizabeth to pronounce God's blessing on her young relative and on Mary's unborn child as well. And that's the point here. Elizabeth is experiencing a miracle, but it's not about her. She has this miraculous child in her old age. It's not even about her child. Everybody points at Jesus. Zechariah does. Elizabeth does, Mary does, John does. Everybody is pointing. And Elizabeth feels blessed, incredibly blessed, just to be part of this. She says in verse 43, Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should even come to me? She's incredibly blessed to encounter the mother of her Lord. Um, You don't hear Elizabeth saying, Wait a minute, wait a minute, I've got a miracle baby too. Why isn't my baby Lord instead of some weird bug-eating prophet? Hmm? Why my baby get to be Lord? No, no, everything is about, she knows everything is about this greater child that Mary is carrying. She wants to bless one who is blessed more than she. Um, And so that brings us to this point. It's, it's, a, it's a humility that's appropriate for the birth of Christ. It all revolves around him. Could, could it be said that the celebration at your house this season has that, the mark of that humility and that it all revolves around Christ? You know, I wonder, you see in Elizabeth and you see in Mary, that when they are most humble, they are the best pointers to Christ. And so this season, who has God put on your heart to invite into your home or to invite to one of our services so that you might be a pointer in their life towards Christ this season? Um, 
And we're going to post some resources on the web in the next day or so that'll help you with those kind of starting those kinds of helpful conversations about the birth of Christ and what it means at Christmas with people that God has put in your world. But now Mary, as, as we come to the close of this section, she breaks out in song or some kind of poem or maybe it's some kind of spoken word, um, but Mary breaks out in a song here that's often called the Magnificat. It starts in verse 46. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's where that word comes from, the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary is rejoicing about the personal blessing that God has given to her. Okay? This is a very personal reflection of God's mercy to her from someone who's so humble. From the, she's someone from a little town in the middle of nowhere, a carpenter's fiance, who would have thought? But it's not just her social standing, but it's also about her spiritual standing. She readily acknowledges here that she needs a savior. She rejoices in God, my savior. God is doing something very personal for Mary here. He's using her extraordinarily, yes, She's going to bring the Savior into the world. But she will also be saved by his work, his cross work when he grows. God, her Savior, has come to redeem her from her sin as well. And he comes through her own son. But her joy extends beyond just personal joy. Look at verse 50. It says, his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, she says, and we are in that line of generations that are blessed by God's mercy, right? Comes to us through Mary's son. To those who fear him, his mercy will come upon them. But to those who disregard him, they face something else. And she continues in her song, verse 51, God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So repeatedly Mary says, the humble will receive God's mercy and the proud will be taken down by God. Are you inclined to be able to say like Mary, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me as you have said. Are you more inclined to boss God around and say, God, I need you to take care of this. Um, may you do for me as I have prayed. You know, the humble posture before the Lord is being presented to us as the right response to the birth of Christ. God is inviting us to be humble before him like Mary and even like Elizabeth. When we are humble before him, we acknowledge our great need for him. Like Mary, surely if Mary needs a savior, we need a savior. We need someone to satisfy us and someone to show us mercy and to lift us up. 
We need someone to become our sin bearer and bear our sins so that we can be restored to a right relationship with God. Christmas is perhaps the most fabulous time to embrace Christ as Savior. That's why he came. That's why he came. To place your faith in Savior King Jesus. To trust him to bear your sins away by his work on the cross so that you will not have to bear it forever and always be separated from God. Remember those words of Tim Keller that I started with. There has never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do so. Christmas means that we are so lost, so unable to save ourselves, that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. Are you willing to admit that today? Are you willing to receive that from God today? That you need a Savior, and the Savior is born at Christmas in Christ. And those of us who receive that grace, we know that it's grace. We don't deserve it. That we are like Mary, mere servants, and we submit willingly to whatever he has. This is the response of humility. And Mary says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. It's the film, fulfillment of 2,000-year-old promise, Mary sang, that was given to Abraham long, long ago. God keeps his word. He remembers his mercy. The coming of Jesus is the fulfillment of God's ancient promise. And so today it's important just to say, do I believe this? Do I trust it? Do I believe it's the only hope my neighbors had? And Elizabeth and Mary invite us to a humble faith that obeys, that's honored to be chosen by God, that needs a Savior and rejoices that he has come. Bow with me in prayer if you would, please. Lord, help us to reorder this Christmas. A Savior has been born. And this is what we celebrate. So help us to be humble and to remove ourselves from that center place and carve out the time to worship and delight in our Savior. Lord, give us obedient hearts. And I pray especially for those who are sensing right now that you are inviting them to cast their sin upon your son, Jesus. Father, grant them faith now to believe that Jesus did come to be the Savior of the world. That's why he was born. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he rose on the third day, to bear our sins away in love so that we could know you as Father. Grant them faith to believe and trust in that now and always. We ask this in Jesus' great name and for his sake. Amen. Stand with us.